0: This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett.
1: Welcome to the program. In our second segment today, we expect to be joined by UC Davis Professor of Emergency Medicine, Dr. Garen Wintemute. For a couple of decades now, Dr. Wintemute has been... uh, striving to achieve some reasonable gun control efforts here in the United States of America, which has put him in the crosshairs, as it were, of some powerful lobbying groups here in America. Having crossed paths with Dr. Wintermute a couple decades back when I was an intern over at the Sacramento Medical Center, I'm sure he will have some compelling things to say. Stay tuned for that in our second segment. A great joy of broadcasting here at KDVS is the fact that uh, here in our community-based radio station, people help each other out quite a bit. I believe that this week marks our fifth anniversary of broadcasting here uh, on 90.3 FM. Although our very first uh, broadcast was under the auspices of Dr. Andy's Poetry and Technology Hour, But it's been a great experience, five years running now, and uh, in numerous instances, past shows have been played by other DJs who um, stepped in when we were on vacation or otherwise indisposed. Uh, This happened most recently last week, and we want to say thank you to Robin Fox of the Saturday Morning Folk Show, who aired an archival program uh, which Mr. McMillan put together from uh, several uh, previous uh, uh, editions of Radio Parallax. But in the past, uh, Klinger uh, has stepped in, Maggie Kat has, uh, has done this as well, uh, Melissa Kenny and a lot of other DJs here at KDVS. We want to say thanks to all of you. Last week, yours truly was uh, indisposed by virtue of attending the 31st annual Fingers to Toes Primary Care Orthopedics uh, um, Conference, which took place at the Stanford Sierra Camp at Fallen Leaf Lake up in South Lake Tahoe. This was a uh, truly outstanding conference, and I'm looking forward to uh, bringing on this program a few of the interesting folks I encountered while up in Lake Tahoe last week. The fact that uh, a sewage pipe broke last week and that the road had to be torn up and (laughs) isolated us, all of us uh, up in this uh, uh, Sierra Shangri-La, well, it, it it all worked out fine. But on last week's program, we did not air the traditional on this day in history, so I think we'll do at least one one item from June 14th. On June 14th, 1954, over spirited public objections, U.S. President Dwight Eisenhower signed a bill adding the words under God to the Pledge of Allegiance. Now let's, let's do another one. On a happier note, on the same date in 1982, Argentina surrendered to Great Britain, ending the war over the Falkland Islands. But to bring things up to speed... Today is June 21st, and on June 21st, 1633, Italian astronomer Galileo, whose celestial research was published in 1632 as Dialogue Concerning the Two Chief World Systems, is commanded by the Inquisition to abjure, curse, and detest his Copernican heliocentric views. To its credit, the Vatican later admitted that Galileo was right about the Earth going around the Sun. That was in 1992. On June 21, 1954, the American Cancer Society presents research data showing that smokers over the age of 50 have a 75% higher mortality rate than persons their age who do not smoke. After 10 years of foot dragging, the United States government finally, in 1964, acknowledged that smoking did appear to have some health problems associated with it. But here's the item I find most interesting for this date. On June 21st, 1788, New Hampshire became the ninth and last needed state to ratify the Constitution of the United States, thereby making the document the law of the land. So although we in America like to think of July 4th, 1776 as the day we started a new nation, no, no, it actually was June 21st, 1788. June 21st, today is, of course, the annual summer solstice, which makes it the longest day of the year if you live north of the equator. Today is actually the winter solstice for our listeners down in Australia and New Zealand. Actually, the solstice passed about noon today, so that for the next six months, uh, the days are going to continue to get shorter until we reach the winter solstice, or if you're living in Australia, the summer solstice on December 22nd. Curiously, the planet Mars, which has almost an identical tilt of its axis relative to the plane in which all the planets orbit, undergoes remarkably similar seasons as do we on Earth. In a lot of other cultures, they call today Midsummer. In fact, I believe Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream refers to uh, events, enchanted events taking place on this the shortest night of the year. But uh, as things evolve, we now consider this to be the uh, demarcation between spring and summer. So it's now official. Summer has begun. Our quote of the day comes from a famous person who once said, I'm no Einstein. Oddly enough, the man who said that was Albert Einstein himself. Our quip of the day comes from the legendary American humorist Robert Benchley, who once said, There are two kinds of people in the world. Those who divide the world into two kinds of people and those who don't. Our statistic of the day comes from the USA Today Gallup poll. Notes that if the presidential candidate expressly stated that he or she did not believe in evolution, 54% of Americans say it would not affect their voting decision. 28% say they would be less likely to vote for that candidate. And 15% say they'd be more likely to vote for him or her. I understand that three of the Republicans debating this uh, not so long ago said they didn't believe in evolution. Frightening stuff. All right, let's do the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, last week was a good week for sour grapes after deposed CBS News anchor Dan Rather said that the evening news had gone downhill since the network hired Katie Couric to, quote, tart it up, unquote, and, quote, dumb it down, unquote. We still like what Walter Cronkite said to us on this program about Dan Rather, which was that he certainly stayed in the chair a long time. It was, conversely, a bad week for the war in Afghanistan last week with the news that the 1,200 Polish troops joining NATO's security force in Afghanistan could not join the fight for several weeks because the keys to their Humvees and other military vehicles had been stolen. We shall have to send away for spares, said a spokesman for the defense ministry. I guess I can't, at, at this point, resist inserting a modification of the old Rodney Dangerfield joke about, uh, did you hear the one about the Polish defense minister that locked his keys in the car? Took him two hours to get his family out. And please, please don't, don't send the letters in. It could have been the Italians. It could have been the French. Uh, well, actually, couldn't have been the French. Could have been the El Salvadorians, whatever. But it was the Poles, okay? And finally, last week was an ugly week for Privacy after the Maryland Court of Appeals ruled that police violated a man's constitutional rights when they snapped on rubber gloves and searched his buttocks for a hidden drug stash in the middle of a Baltimore car wash. The cops, said the court, should have conducted the search in a more discreet location. So yeah, there's a scene out of Beavis and Bud hit to America. All right, let's do the only in America file. I I just especially, I especially like this one. Apparently, the Pentagon seriously considered developing a gay bomb that would turn enemy troops homosexual and make them irresistibly attracted to one another. And no, ladies and gentlemen, I'm not making this up. Documents obtained through a Freedom of Information request show that in 1994, the Air Force asked for $7.5 million dollars To develop an aphrodisiac as a chemical weapon. Gay groups reacted to the news with dismay. It's just offensive that they think, by turning people gay, that the other military would be incapable of doing their job, said Jeff Kors of Equality California. All right, Uh, we are pleased to note that for once, we beat New Scientist magazine to a story. Of course, dear listener, you, you know all about this from having previously listened to the show. But New Scientist is finally catching up with the news that, for such a big animal, elephants have surprisingly sensitive touch. Not only do they use their feet to hear calls from other herds, it now appears that how they respond depends on who's calling. Says the magazine... Elephants use low-frequency vocalizations to communicate between herds up to several kilometers apart. These rumblings also generate seismic waves in the ground. And Caitlin O'Connor-Rodwell of Stanford University Medical Center in California and her colleagues suspected these might play a role in communication. Anyway, we would refer you to our website for more information on this study. You know, and I forgot to mention earlier in the broadcast talking about uh, the solstice and things in the sky. If you've been observing, uh, the stunning views. After sunset you know, out in the western sky, you have no doubt noticed the extremely bright planet Venus, which is joined uh, just above it to the left by Saturn and to the bright star Regulus, which is part of uh, Leo the Lion. As the moon went sweeping past all of these in this past week, it's put on uh, quite a show of these four bright objects. The moon, of course, uh, is continuing to move uh, to the east each night and out of the way, but you'll still be able to see Venus, Saturn, and Regulus off into the west, and it does make quite a pretty sight. All right, here's a news item that uh, we simply cannot resist here at Radio Parallax. I discovered this up in the uh, the, the giveaway paper up in the Gardnerville-Minden area in Nevada, which is just uh, just down the Kingsbury Grade from South Shore, a place I'd never been until uh, until Sunday. Anyway, from their freebie uh, paper, I learned the following. Whammo Incorporated changed the name of the Pluto Platter to Frisbee 50 years ago today. This is uh, an article dated June 17th. Flinging a new word into the cultural ether that still conjures images of carefree fun in the park and breezy days at the beach, wrote business writer Michael Leidke. And to think, Walter Fred Morrison, the inventor of the beloved disc, thought the new moniker would never fly. I thought Frisbee was a terrible name, Morrison, now 87, said. I thought it was insane. Frisbee instead became insanely popular, making the name as synonymous with flying discs as Google is with searching the internet and Kleenex is with facial tissue. But Whammo doesn't allow the Frisbee name to be thrown about indiscriminately. When the Emeryville-based company sees Frisbee used to describe discs made by other manufacturers, lawyers dispatch legal notices seeking to protect the trademark term. Anyway, I love stories like this, so I can't help but relating a little bit of this. Apparently, Fred Morrison began experimenting with flying objects when he was a teenager. He uh, first tossed around a popcorn lid at a Thanksgiving uh, dinner in 1937, He later graduated onto cake pans. When he started thinking about designing a flying disc, he called it the Whirlaway, a tribute to the racehorse Whirlaway, which won the 1941 Triple Crown. By the time he'd scraped up enough money to develop a mold for the concept, there were reports of a spacecraft crashing in Roswell, New Mexico. Morrison ended up calling his first line of discs Flying Saucers. After upgrading his design, he then dubbed the disc the Pluto Platter, now, supposedly, uh, up in New England, there was a Connecticut bakery, the Frisbee Pie Company, which students up in that area apparently tossed the pie tins around for fun after they ate the pies, and it led them to refer to the Pluto platter as a Frisbee. When wham co-founders Rich Ner and Arthur Spud Melan first obtained the marketing rights in 1957, they decided to embrace that nickname that college kids had given the Pluto platter. The rest, as they say, Is history. And we are going to try to put a phone call through to see if we can get Mr. Uh, Fred Morrison to talk to us about his invention. I don't know whether we'll get him, but we're going to try. Of course, we have to add at this point wait, there's more (laughs) in news of the fact that Ronco, the people that brought you the Vegematic, the Pocket Fisherman, and numerous other uh, (laughs) devices hawked on late night television. ...have filed for Chapter 11. Evidently, Ronco Corporation, which was recently sold by Ron Popeil, the man who founded the company in 1958... ...is probably going to come up about $12 million short on the $55 million uh, price tag which he sold the company for. Which I think Ron will still be okay. Yeah, apparently, despite owning the rights to the Showtime rotisserie and the GLH spray-on-hair system... Ronco apparently had assets of about uh, 14 million and debts of about 33 million. So I guess we won't be seeing any more of them on late-night television. Although I do recall oh so well being a student at this university back many years ago and actually owning a Vegematic. And to their credit, they, they weren't they weren't bad devices. And uh, speaking of blasts from the past, I I was sorry to see a headline which sort of reiterated an old joke I used to make about a quarter century ago referring to the media in America. I said, oh yeah, you know, they're pretty biased. You know, all they ever talk about is the bad side of nuclear war. So it was with some dismay I I read a study somebody did about, well, if Pakistan and India did have a limited nuclear exchange, all the burning soot and uh, atmospheric particulate matter... Would kind of mitigate global warming for a while. And to that, I guess I would say, well, I guess, you know, every mushroom cloud has a radioactive silver lining. Which segues us rather nicely into the June 14th uh, edition of the Sacramento News and Review. Article by Mark Drolette, described as longtime Sacramentan and soon to be permanent Central American, who's written a book titled Why Costa Rica? Why the Hell Not? <laughs> kind of like this guy. Uh, His article notes that the following lead paragraph from an April 11, 2007 article caught his eye. Mr. Drolet noticed the following. Proposed explosive tests upwind from Tracy, California will release as much as 450 pounds of radioactive depleted uranium dust into the air every year, according to an air pollution permit application filed Friday by Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. Wrote Mr. Drolet, reading the entire item reminded me of my reaction when I first viewed the Project for the New American Century website several years ago. It had to be a bad fraternity prank gone even badder. He knows that unfortunately, John Upton of the Tracy Press answered a phone call he made and assured him the column was legit. And even worse, the mainstream media hadn't touched the story. The article notes that the permit application was filed with the San Joaquin Valley Air Pollution Control District, www.valleyair.org. The district spokeswoman uh, to whom the author voiced outrage assured him that the opinion he had was not uncommon and said information about a public hearing on the permit would be posted online once a venue large enough to accommodate those interested was selected. Mr. Drolet suggested that she considered a stadium. We will continue to follow that story. All right, in a moment we will, uh, we will come back and speak with Dr. Garen Wintemute, but before we go, I find the following uh, item just plain irresistible. Writing in yesterday's Sacramento B, staff writer Dorothy Corber notes that uh, the Vatican has now offered the Drivers Ten Commandments. These were in fact issued last Tuesday from the Vatican City as part of a larger document called Guidelines for the Pastoral Care of the Road. The, uh, the Pope has apparently issued some new guidelines suggesting that uh, you know that religion be put right in the front seat. Motorists are urged to pray while driving, perhaps reciting the Rosary, which due to its rhythm and gentle repetition does not distract the driver's attention, at least so says the Vatican. Oh, and by the way, as of the first of next month, California drivers are going to have to have their cell phones be hands-free or face a, uh, a ticket of $285. I don't know. I've got some doubts about these driver's Ten Commandments. The first one is, you shall not kill. Now, I, I'm no religious scholar, but <laughs> I'm pretty sure that one was already in force. I mean, does the Vatican really need to tell people, okay, if you're in a car... Keep in mind, you still can't kill people. Some of these commandments are a little confusing. Number nine is on the road, protect the more vulnerable party. Personally, I find that one a little hard to interpret as opposed to say like, you know, the driver on the right has the right of way. But the one that really seemed to have caught people's eye was number five, cars shall not be for an expression of power and domination and an occasional sin. This prompted uh, former Radio Parallax guest, Dr. Alison Cudair, Professor of Religious Studies here at UCD, to note that she was totally speechless. The Bee noted that she was particularly bemused by the commandment that cars shall not be an expression of power and domination. What? she asked. No more Mercedes or Aston Martins? No more Hummers? Oh dear. And, uh, yeah, we would note that although it may have been kind of a religious gray area in the past, it's now there in black and white. Cars shall not be for an occasional sin.
2: Baby, you can drive my car. Yes, I'm gonna be a star. Baby, you can drive my car. And maybe I love you. Beep, 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 yeah.
1: Anyway... Let's take a short break. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. us now in the program is someone we've been meaning to have on for quite some time. Dr. Garen Wintemute is a professor of epidemiology here at UC Davis. He's done a recent study regarding gun shows and what they contribute to uh, the gun violence in America. He's here today to talk to us about that and uh, other things related to gun violence in America. Welcome to Radio Parallax, Dr. Garen Wintemute.
0: Doug, how you doing?
1: We're doing okay. What's, uh, what's the deal with this study?
0: We were interested in finding out, as you said, um, how big a problem gun shows were in terms of furnishing guns for criminal use. And we also wanted to get a handle on whether California's regulations work. Uh, California regulates gun commerce in general and also regulates gun shows in particular lots more than other states do.
1: How freely available are guns at gun shows?
0: it depends on where you look uh... the main finding of our study was that the regulations here in california work um, if you go to a gun show in california uh... guns are very readily available the shows are are bustling events but in order to buy a gun you have to go through a background check there's paperwork done um, a record is kept but if you go across the border to arizona or nevada uh... gun sales are undocumented, anonymous, no questions asked. You can just walk up, offer some cash to somebody, they can give you their gun, and you walk away.
1: I imagine gun shows are a way you can circumvent whatever regulations are present.
0: That's right. Whatever regulations are present in California, in any case. In fact, uh, at a couple of shows in Reno where Nothing else was going on in the neighborhood but the gun show. The only reason for a car to be in the parking lot was because the person was attending the gun show. Um, almost a third of the cars were, in, were from California. We can only speculate from, from that, but it's a reasonable speculation that people are crossing the border and buying items that they can't buy here.
1: Well, as I recall, about 15 years ago, I attended a gun show and actually came away with a rifle. What, what are the guns that are causing trouble from gun shows?
0: Well, as you say, again, it, it depends on um, on how specific you want to get. On balance, it's clear that handguns figure disproportionately in crime. Um, but these days, one of the important functions that gun shows sadly serve, uh, particularly those in Arizona, it appears, is arming narcotics traffickers. And they like rifles. They buy AK-47s or AR-15s, which are the civilian knockoff of uh, the rifle type.
1: Can you buy AK-47s legally in America?
0: Oh, sure. Um, you can't buy them in California, but you can buy them in Arizona or Nevada. The California is one of very few states to to still have a ban on so-called assault weapons. The, the federal ban expired some time ago.
1: So in essence, someone can go over to Nevada, Arizona, and take away the same kind of weapon you'd see in Afghanistan.
0: That's right, with a, a small but I think important difference. By and large, The weapons that you buy here are what are called semi-automatic. The gun fires one time and automatically reloads uh, to fire again each time you pull the trigger. But you have to pull the trigger each time you want to fire one round. A fully automatic uh, weapon like those we see in Iraq, pull the trigger, hold it down, and the gun will empty itself.
1: My understanding, though, is that, that people in America in the know and doesn't take that much expertise are able to convert them with a, with a kit. Is that, is that so?
0: That's correct. Yeah. The kits are also illegal. Okay. Uh, instructions on how to make the parts for the kits are not, and they're easy to find.
1: All right. Well, you, you've worked, I guess, tw- 20 years at this point, Dr. Winamute, in the, in the ER and, and here in Sacramento. What kind of things do you see as a consequence of, of gun violence?
0: Fortunately, Sacramento has not, as yet, become a major player uh, in in the Saturday Night Gun Club, uh, and that may happen as rates of violence turn up again, as they are as they are beginning to do. Um, I got involved in this, though, as as lots of others in emergency medicine did, out of the knowledge that the vast majority of people who die after being shot never get a crack at medical care. The, the wounds are fatal and they die where they were shot. So if we wanted to make inroads into the number of people who died from gun violence, we needed to prevent them from getting shot in the first place.
1: I don't know what the stats are for, for Saturday night, uh, having been an intern at the Med Center so many years back, but it seems to me, that talking to people that were in anesthesia and, and such, that when people are going to the OR on a Saturday night, uh, an awful a lot of them are young males, uh, gunshot wound victims.
0: Yes. Um, Whether it's gunshots or knives or, for that matter, motor vehicle trauma, uh, weekend nights uh, tend to be heavy on trauma, and young males are at risk for trauma of all types.
1: Gun control is a perennial issue here in America. Dr. Winnie, what would you like to see in regards to some reasonable controls uh, in the future?
0: Well, some good starts are being undertaken, actually, as we speak. Uh, In the wake of the Virginia Tech tragedy, a measure is moving through Congress that has bipartisan support, has NRA support um, to improve the sort of data that are used for background checks. Uh, background checks prior to gun purchase are only as good as the data they're performed on, and there are lots of holes, and there seems to be general agreement that those those holes need to be plugged. That's a good start. Um, I think, and lots of others do too, that we need to go further and require a background check for all gun purchases Uh, you and i talked about this a little bit we basically have a dual system for buying guns in the united states if you buy from a licensed gun dealer you have to show identification and fill out a form and there's a background check and here in california there's a a waiting period Um, in most states you can legally buy a gun from another private party and as we talked about those sales are completely anonymous completely undocumented and completely legal. And the vast majority of the general public, and for that matter, the majority of gun owners and NRA members, agree that we should have background checks, at least for all handgun sales.
1: Are are, are people buying guns on on Craigslist and eBay?
0: I can't tell you specifically about Uh Craigslist and eBay, but it is possible to buy guns on the Internet, both legally and illegally. Um, I can legally purchase a gun from a dealer who lives in another state, and that dealer ships the gun to a dealer here in California, and I, do the, and I do the paperwork, and it's all perfectly okay. It's also become clear that the Internet has opened up gun trafficking, illegal sales, just as it has opened up so much of commerce of other types.
1: You know, uh, on this program, a couple of months back, we talked to uh, Dr. Bill Durston about his essay in the Sacramento News and Review, where he addressed um, sort of the perception people have about the Second Amendment and how it gets twisted around a bit. How do you address that issue when people say, look, we have an amendment that says we have a right to bear arms? Some people say that's more about uh, a right to have a a militia for, like, a National Guard. What do you say to people that that bring that up?
0: I say I honestly don't know what the answer is. Um, Experts in constitutional law disagree on this. And some of the country's leading experts in constitutional law have actually changed their minds and gone from one camp to the other. What what I'm aware of is this, that Whether we're talking about a collective right or an individual right, no one believes that this is a right that cannot reasonably be circumscribed. So for the sake of the argument, let's assume that we have consensus that there is an individual right to gun ownership, just as there is an individual right to free speech. As it was once famously put, no man has the right to shout fire in a crowded theater rights are subject to reasonable circumscription uh, and that would be the case with an individual right to bear arms if such a right is found to exist.
1: Well, uh, the gun industry is certainly influential in this country, the NRA, etc. they bottle up an awful lot of potential legislation. Do you think that uh, we're going to see some surmounting of that?
0: Well, in the short run, we'll we'll at least see movement ahead on areas where there can be compromise. Um, I'm less optimistic in the short run Uh, about moving forward on matters that the NRA opposes. What's missing, I think, is the sort of focus and commitment on the side of those who advocate reform that is clearly present on the side of those who would like to keep things where they are or, for that matter, roll things back. It's interesting to see that if you look at polling data, most gun owners, support the sorts of measures that are generally characterized as a, as a gun control agenda, but they're convinced that the so-called anti-gunners, as they see them, will stop nowhere, want to take away all their guns. I, I don't know anybody who actually intends on doing that, but the National Rifle Association has been able to convince people that that's the case and thereby strip away support from even reasonable measures. It's going to take time.
1: Well, Dr. Garen Wintermute, we thank you for speaking with us and hope that you can uh, join us again on Radio Parallax in the future because I know this is an issue that's not going to go away.
2: It's been a pleasure.
1: you know, this is a good point, I think, to talk about uh, an excerpt from one of our favorite sources for this radio program, the Uncle John's Bathroom Reader series. For this, we owe a debt of thanks to atmospheric scientist Dr. Tony Held, formerly here of UC Davis, who first alerted us to this excellent series some years back. This item comes from one of the earlier uh, installments of the series, the number eight. This was titled The Ultimate Bathroom Reader. And as I commence this, I would ask you the question, does this constitute a conspiracy? Because, you know, the term conspiracy theory, conspiracy theorist, uh, is fairly pejorative. Because I think of uh, the sort of thing that, you know, is about to follow as pretty much a conspiracy in my book. But you, you get to make the call. Wrote the reader. Before the Second World War, nearly every major city in the U.S. had a network of low-polluting public transportation, streetcars, electric trains, or trolleys. Los Angeles, for example, had the largest electric train system in the world. It linked the 56 towns of greater L.A. and carried 80 million passengers a year. Now, I always knew they had a good trolley system in L.A., but I didn't know it was that extensive. Anyway, said the article, many public transit systems around the country were owned by electric companies. They'd been built in the years before most homes were wired for electricity to increase sales of electric power. But in the mid-1930s, Congress began breaking up the utility monopolies. In 1935, it passed antitrust laws that forced them to sell their mass transit holdings. As it worked out, these mass transit companies were put up for sale at a time when the nation's automakers were looking for ways to increase their sales. Wrote Russell Mobiker in his book, Corporate Crime and Violence, The auto industry was in a vulnerable position. It was not clear that the four-wheeled buggy would become the transportation method of choice for a nation in the midst of its worst economic depression. But the industry knew that without efficient rail systems, city dwellers around the country would be forced to find alternative means of transportation. So, General Motors... Determined to sell more cars and buses, decided to destroy the rail systems. In 1932, GM formed a holding company called United Cities Motor Transit, UCMT. Via UCMT, the automakers bought three mass transit companies, converted them to buses, and sold them back to local companies with the stipulation that they buy only GM buses in the future. This worked in Michigan, but when GM tried to use the same technique in Portland, Oregon, it ran into trouble. The American Transit Association publicly exposed GM's plan, and it was forced to dismantle UCMT. So GM decided to skip these small companies and to attack New York's trolley system, which was America's largest. GM then got some allies with an existing bus company, the Omnibus Corporation, and uh, in 18 months managed to dismantle New York's massive public transportation system. It then took on the rest of the country. Using a small Illinois bus company as a front, it began buying up dozens of mass transit companies. Wrote journalist Jonathan Quitney: Tracks were literally torn out of the ground, sometimes overnight. Overhead power lines were dismantled and valuable off-street rights-of-way were sold. In East St. Louis, for example, the transition from streetcars to buses took less than 24 hours. As the front company got bigger, GM transformed it into a holding company called National City Lines, Inc., and approached other companies that would also benefit from the destruction of electric transit. By 1937, Greyhound Bus Lines, the Firestone Tire and Rubber Company, Mack Manufacturing, Standard Oil of California, and Phillips Petroleum had also joined up, investing $10 million. NCL finished dismantling transit companies after the end of World War II. By the time it was done, it had eliminated lines carrying hundreds of millions of passengers in more than 45 cities, including New York, Philadelphia, Baltimore, St. Louis, Oakland, Salt Lake City, and Los Angeles. By 1955, only 5,000 streetcars remained nationwide ...out of a fleet that had numbered 40,000 in 1936. So let's go back to that initial question. Is this a conspiracy? Well, some folks in the government thought so. In 1949, GM and the other conspirators were indicted for violating antitrust laws. They defended themselves by claiming that their investments in the enterprise were small... ...and that they had exerted no managerial control over national city lines... They claimed they'd put money into NCL because transit lines were a good investment. But internal documents showed they knew they were going to lose money. The real profits would come later. And for companies that thought they weren't doing anything wrong, they were awfully secretive about their involvement with NCL. For example, Standard Oil of California invested its money through two other companies because a company official later admitted, we didn't want to be criticized. Firestone channeled its investments through two of its employees, who posed as independent investors. The investigation showed that all NCL was supposed to be an independent company. The agreements under which the conspirators provided money specified that all buses, tires, and petroleum products had to be purchased from the companies that owned stock in national city lines. Once uh, all of America's light rail systems were gone... Big business got out of the transit business. GM, Standard Oil, Firestone, Phillips, Mac, and Greyhound all dumped their stocks. So we look at when we look at the investment that's been required all across the United States to re-establish light rail lines—be it here in Sacramento or BART in the Bay Area, or the Metro line in Washington D.C. Uh, well, it didn't have to be that way. This, to me, is an example of a real-life conspiracy, and in fact. The federal courts believed that was the case as well. In the end, General Motors, National City Lines, Firestone Tire and Rubber, Phillips Petroleum, Mac Manufacturing, and Standard Oil of California were all convicted of violating the Sherman Antitrust Act. So I didn't want you to think there wasn't any justice in all of this. Because when it was all said and done, each of those companies was fined $5,000. And the CEOs, they got nailed too. Company officials found guilty were each fined a dollar. Anyway, we need more rail, uh, rail lines in this country. There's talk about building them. And uh, Tom Philp actually wrote a nice little editorial in the Sacramento Bee about Amtrak a while back. We've been meaning to get to Tom Philp on this program for a while. We're going to have to try a little bit harder. Anyway let's take a break. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. All right, this is the top of our third segment, and it is this part of the show where we traditionally delve into obituaries uh, when, when they arise, and we have one to uh, address today. We would like to note the passing of Wally Herbert. Mr. Herbert died June 12th at his home in Inverness, Scotland. Uh, as complications related to diabetes. He was 72. Actually, Mr. Herbert was knighted by Queen Elizabeth in 2000, and so I suppose he's actually... Sir Wally Herbert. Although history books generally record that the first person to reach the North Pole on foot was Admiral Richard Perry in April of 1909, we at Radio Parallax believe uh, the best evidence would suggest that the first person to accomplish this feat was in fact Wally Herbert in May of 1969. Mr. Herbert was quite the explorer of the polar regions in late 1950s and early 60s while traveling on foot and in dog sled. He mapped 45,000 square miles of the Antarctic. Joined by some of the members of the Inuit peoples, he later roamed thousands of miles in the Arctic. In 1969, Mr. Herbert led a 3,620 mile trek across treacherous ice flows at the North Pole which started in Point Barrow, Alaska, and wound up in Spitsbergen, Norway. It was on April 4, 1969, 407 days into the journey, that the team stopped at the North Pole, planted a Union Jack, and ate beef stew from supplies hauled there by 40 sled dogs. Mr. Herbert later said it seemed like conquering a horizontal Everest. Referring to the pole, he said it was too cold and too windy to hold any other celebrations. When he arrived, it was... 50 below zero. Now, of course, if you check your history books, it will claim that it was 60 years earlier in 1909 that Admiral Perry self-reported to the world after returning that he'd gotten to the poll on April 6th, a claim which we here at Radio Parallax find to be suspicious at best. Our skepticism is rooted in a chapter of Andreas Schroeder's book, Cheats, Charlatans and Chicanery, subtitled More Outrageous Tales of Skullduggery. Mr. Schroeder had previously edited the book Scams, Scandals, and Skullduggery. Anyway, in this highly entertaining chapter in the book, uh, Mr. Schroeder outlines some of the polar hanky panky, not only of Robert Perry, but also of his rival Frederick Cook and Admiral Richard Byrd who is dubiously credited with being the first man to fly over the North Pole. Anyway, writing in the New York Times, Dennis Hevesy, in Mr. Herbert's obituary, noted that the claim by Richard Perry has been debated. In 1973, Dennis Rollins, an astronomer, wrote a book, Perry at the North Pole, Fact or Fiction, in which he calculated that Perry had missed the pole by 60 miles. In 1985, Wally Herbert who had written nine books on polar exploration, was invited to examine Perry's diary and astronomical observations. These were documents that had not been made public since 1911. In September of 1988, the National Geographic Society, which, by the way, had sponsored Perry's expedition, published an article by Mr. Herbert and its magazine detailing navigational errors, suspect distance records, and inexplicably blank pages in the Admiral's diary. Drawing on new knowledge of Arctic Ocean weather, currents, and ice drift, Wally Herbert calculated that uh, Perry missed the pole by 30 to 60 miles. Mr. Herbert was particularly concerned that Perry's handwritten diary offered no record of his 30 hours near the pole. Several pages were blank, and the entry for April 6th made no mention of the pole. Instead, a loose-leaf page had been inserted declaring, THE POLE AT LAST! The obituary went on. In 1989, however, the National Geographic Society commissioned the Navigation Foundation, a professional society, to examine the evidence. And based on their analysis of photographs, celestial sightings, and ocean depth readings, the foundation concluded that Perry's final camp had been within five miles of the pole. And we'll tell you right now, this last study is a bunch of bunk. (laughs) Because in Schroeder's book, he noted that He was all of a sudden gaining 50 to 75 miles a day over polar ice, whereas other explorers rarely exceeded 15 miles a day. Oh, and coincidentally, he'd sent back at this point witnesses that were familiar with celestial navigation. Most prominent among them, Robert Bartlett, uh, who Perry sent back home, even though Bartlett was the only man who could have verified his claims for positions, distances, and the location of the pole itself. So, as far as we're concerned, the first man to walk to the North Pole, Wally Herbert, passed away earlier this month at the age of 72. And he accomplished the feat 60 years after the history books say somebody did it. And now you know the rest of the story. All right, let's do some uh, some local news. Apparently a water trail, which is going to hug the 72-mile shoreline of Lake Tahoe, is um, in the works. State legislators are trying to designate the California Tahoe Conservancy, the agency responsible for protecting Tahoe, as a leader in planning amenities along this, in essence, kayak trail throughout the lake. Article in the B by M.S. Enkoji uh, quotes... Local kayaker, Bill Griffin, uh, who's a canoeing instructor in Sacramento. Uh, Bill Griffin's 80 years old. He paddles in the American River 265 days a year. Gives this idea a thumbs up. He notes the concept is a good idea. I'm sure there's a lot of people who want to make trips around the lake. And having hiked uh, as part of this ortho conference uh, last week along the Rubicon Point, this is some stunning scenery. This will make a wonderful uh, Wonderful route for people to get in a kayak and paddle around Tahoe, and I'm and I'm looking forward to doing it myself uh, one day soon. And in other water-related news, with a with a local uh, local hook, we have the following article from the AP, dated March 22nd of this year, Dateline Washington. Two leading House Democrats asked the Interior Department Monday to investigate whether a former agency official pushed to remove a fish from the threatened species list, even though she had a potential financial stake in the outcome. Julie MacDonald, who resigned last month after a rebuke from the Department's Inspector General over other endangered species issues, was heavily involved in the delisting of the Sacramento spittail while owning an 80-acre farm in the creature's California habitat near Dixon. Says the article, the fish, a Delta minnow, was listed as threatened from 1999 till 2003 until it was taken off the list after intervention by McDonald, who was Deputy Assistant Secretary for Fish, Wildlife, and Parks when she resigned. Biologists in the Sacramento Field Office had concluded the fish should remain on the list. Mandates to protect the spittail could have required flooding in the Yolo bypass, the floodplain where McDonald owns her farm. In a letter to Interior Secretary Dirk Kempthorne last month, Democratic Representatives George Miller of Martinez and Nick Rashall of West Virginia said... It is our understanding that this is the first and only time that a fish species has been removed from the list of threatened species for reasons other than extinction, said the AP. An Interior spokesman did not immediately respond to voicemail messages left after hours, and a message from McDonald left at her home east of Dixon was not immediately returned, said senior officials at Interior. If it turns out that former deputy assistant secretary McDonald acted inappropriately regarding the Sacramento spittail, we will conduct an appropriate review of the regulatory process that led to the final decision. And you know, when the government gets involved in this thing, sometimes there's some pretty hefty fines. Anybody got a buck I can borrow? And on a happier note involving uh, conservation, we would note that the bald eagle The symbol of the U.S. has made a remarkable comeback. Once an estimated 100,000 nesting pairs of these birds graced North America, but uh, the widespread use of pesticides brought them close to extinction in the 1960s when fewer than 500 pair were observed in the continental U.S. Now, thanks to conservation efforts by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, they expect the 2006 count to pass 9,500 breeding pairs in the lower 48 states. Saw my first bald eagle up by Redding about six years ago, and uh, I'm very encouraged by this. And some, unfortunately, bad news regarding animal conservation. The famous Davis Toad Tunnel apparently didn't pan out. When, uh, back in 1995, Yolo County built a tunnel under Pole Line Road to uh, create an access for toads to breed in a drainage pond that was located uh, near the post office, um... Well, it made the national news. It was on CNN. It was lampooned on Comedy Central. And we're sorry to report that, well, it just it just didn't pan out. Apparently, John McNerney, a Davis Wildlife Resources Specialist, uh, confirmed recently that no record occurs of the tunnel ever being used by a toad. Of course, article by Bill Lindelhoff and the Bee did note that it, the original design did have some flaws... The opening was shaped like a steel scoop and became hot. It was noted that toads tend not to jump onto a frying pan when they could avoid it. But uh, Davis author Ten Puntillo, who wrote a book called The Toads of Davis, uh, was saddened by this latest news, but said he thought it did work at first when they watered one into the tunnel at the post office. I guess, <laughs> cooling off the frying pan. No, the truth is, apparently toads are just not used to uh, hopping through a tube. To get where they want to go, Uh, it was just kind of unnatural for them. Unfortunate, um, and there's been quite a bit of mortality on the toad front in the region. Sad to report this, but, uh, you know, perhaps in the future we can learn some lessons and design some better toad access. All right, final item of the day, a science topic. We like doing a little bit of science on every show, and so let's end with uh, a fascinating item from The Economist magazine. As you may or may not know, North America used to have a lot of megafauna, big animals uh, cavorting about on the continent, things like mastodons, woolly mammoths, short-headed bears, ground sloths, camels. But at some point in the fairly recent past, uh, these large mammals disappeared. Human beings have been blamed uh, by some, and where climate change uh, has been the presumed culprit, uh, according to other investigations, we've always leaned toward, uh, you know, the humans did it theory, but uh, there's a new, a fascinating new study that indicates that uh, it may have been neither human beings nor climate change that was responsible. Well, that's actually may have been a climate change, but a climate change based on an impact in the Earth's atmosphere by a comet. According to James Kennett at UC Santa Barbara, uh, basically, any amateur archaeologist could inspect the evidence by digging deep enough. It's noted that in many places of the U.S. and Canada, at a depth corresponding to 12,900 years ago, a few centimeters of charcoal will appear. According to Dr. Kennett, this is the product of wildfires that spanned the continent after an object roughly a kilometer grazed the earth, broke up into small pieces, and deposited all of its oomph as heat into the atmosphere. In a report submitted to a meeting of the American Geophysical Union in Acapulco last month, Dr. Kennett noted that if you examine this, uh, this charcoal, you will find in it glass-like beads made of carbon. To melt carbon, you need a temperature of about 4,000 degrees centigrade, which is pretty hard to come by here on planet Earth. That is quite a bit hotter than uh, the hottest types of lava rock. And when these beads were examined by an electron microscope, they were chock full of diamonds, a micron or less across. Now, uh, you know, to create little mini-diamonds, you need not only heat, but you need a lot of pressure. Which gives researchers the idea that an impact from space may have been responsible. Now, one thing they haven't found is iridium, which is considered to be the fingerprint of the impact 65 million years ago that wiped out the dinosaurs. Which leads them to lean more toward the comet theory. Comets are basically uh, basically giant snowballs, uh, dirty snowballs, ice and dust. And certainly a big enough comet hitting the Earth's atmosphere could have done this sort of thing. Did it? Well, research will have to continue, of course. But it's been known for some time that something big happened about 13,000 years ago. The, uh, the last ice age had ended, the Earth was warming up, and all of a sudden things got cold again. This has been blamed on a giant lake in in North America busting loose, uh, spilling cold water into the Atlantic, disrupting ocean currents. But it now appears that perhaps uh, some of that heat came from, you know, an extraterrestrial impact. Very interesting stuff. And by God, I think we'll put a call into UC Santa Barbara and see if we can't speak with James Kennett about this. Unfortunately, we are out of time today. Our thanks to Dr. Garen Wintermute of UC Davis. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm your host, Douglas Everett. And on the way out today, I think we will use some appropriate music uh, based on the fact that it was 40 years ago this month that the celebrated Monterey Pop Festival took place at the Monterey County Fairgrounds. The festival became legendary for being the first major American appearance by Jimi Hendrix. So I think we'll go out with a little bit of Mr. Hendrix as recorded on the legendary album Band of Gypsies.